Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. Imagine that you spend your days working in an emergency department and one day develop signs and symptoms to suggest serious, potentially life-threatening pathology. You go to the emergency department and your symptoms are dismissed as a minor illness. Later on, a serious condition is diagnosed and you recognize that you were at high risk of losing your life all along. Here to tell her story is Pam Mace. Pam, you're very welcome to this call. I'm delighted that we had the chance to have a conversation for our podcast. I hope you're well today. I am, and thank you very much for having me here today and giving me this opportunity to share my story and to raise awareness of fibromuscular dysplasia. Thank you. That's a nice cue for us in this conversation. I want to explore with you what it was like 20 years ago when you had this diagnosis. Can you start from the day before you had the diagnosis? The day before my diagnosis, I was a practicing emergency room nurse, and I had worked the night shift in the emergency room, which is a level one trauma center, so it's always a little chaotic. I got home late, and then the next morning, I woke up, and I had a dull headache, and I thought maybe it was from the lack of sleeping. It was also hot out. It was in the summer, and I thought that maybe it was just my sinuses and from the heat, and so I really laid around a lot that morning and for several hours. And back then I used to run every single day. And so I thought, well, I'm going to get up and go running. And, you know, hopefully I'll feel better when I come back. So I had went for a run and it was three miles. And when I came home, my pupils were unequal. And as an emergency room nurse, that was alarming. And, you know, what went through my head at that time was, you know, if somebody came into the emergency room, what would I be thinking? And uh, in my own mind, I just felt too young to think that there was anything seriously wrong with me. It was just a dull headache. And but the things that I was considering were if a patient came into the ER, you know, is this a stroke, a tumor, a brain aneurysm? And at that point, my head was a little tender to touch. And so I'd always been very healthy up until that point. And I think that my running really, truly is part of what saved my life that day, that I was just actually very healthy. And so anyways, I laid back down and I, probably the wrong thing to do as a nurse, I knew I should have went straight to the emergency room, but I waited a few hours and I just started feeling worse. The headache became more intense. My head was tender to touch. My pupils were still unequal. I felt very hyper. And in hindsight, that was my blood pressure was elevated. And so I went to one of the local trauma centers and they were busy. Trauma after trauma was coming in and I kept getting put off. And about my third attempt up at the triage window, like I said, I was very anxious. I was getting scared. I was feeling worse. And as I was standing there, the nurse said to me, I'm really sorry. You know, we just have a bunch of life flights coming in. And all of a sudden, the left side of my face had started to go numb. And it was kind of, I felt it inch by inch all the way down the left side of my face. My teeth went numb. 
And right then I said to her, oh my God, my face is going numb. And at the time I was 37 years old and was kind of in shock that anything would really be happening to me. And uh, it was a very scary situation. I think that, you know, I, I was no longer a nurse, but I was that scared patient coming into a, you know, an emergency room. And when they'd got me into the back, my blood pressure was 210 over 130, which was extremely high and dangerous. And over the course of that day, they did imaging. They said that the imaging was negative. My blood pressure was all over the place and it was not treated. And I was sent home uh, with a diagnosis of having a headache and unequal pupils and told to take Tylenol. And at that point, you know, I was so scared that I think I was actually a little relieved that they said they found nothing wrong with me. I didn't want there to be anything wrong with me. And anyways, the next morning, a friend of mine who was an ER physician called me and she said, Pam, you've got to get back to the ER. And so I went to the ER, that the emergency room that she was working at, and they initially diagnosed a left vertebral artery dissection. And at this point, I could not even sit up in a chair, in a bed, and I had to lay flat. Otherwise, the pressure in my head became more intense. And then over the period of a couple days, I was sent back to the first trauma center that I was at because of my diagnosis. And you know, the doctor came in and, and like I said, at that point, I couldn't even, I couldn't sit up. I felt awful. Again, my blood pressure was very elevated. And the doctor came in and said, we're treating your blood pressure and we're sending, we're sending you home. You know, we don't agree with this diagnosis. And my pupils were still unequal. And I, you know, I'd said to the doctor, I'm not leaving. I mean, there is something wrong with me. And I was very scared. I, I was afraid I was going to die. And he left the room very annoyed with me and he came back about a half an hour later. And at that point, you know, several doctors walked into my room, several nurses with IV poles. And at that point I had no idea what was happening to me. And the doctor said, it's actually worse than what we thought. You actually have also dissected one of your carotid arteries. And at that point, it's very emotional even thinking about it. You know, it was in 2000, so 22 years ago. And still talking about it is very emotional. And so over the next 24 hours, they were giving me pain medications, medications to control my blood pressure. And I was still just as miserable. The headache was not going away. And, you know, even with morphine, the doctor scanned me again and he said, you've dissected another artery. And at that point, I had dissected both of my carotid arteries and a left vertebral artery. And that was the beginning of my journey into my diagnosis with the disease. But at that point, I had no diagnosis. They just said that spontaneous dissections happen, one in a couple hundred thousand people, and I just happened to be one of those people. Well, first of all, thank you so much for sharing. Despite the fact that it is an emotional experience for you, we really appreciate that patient with unequal pupils, with uncontrolled hypertension, and the symptoms you're describing would raise all kinds of alarm bells. Thinking back, could you understand why the doctor was annoyed at you? Because you were presenting with some objective signs as well as the symptoms that you were describing. 
Even 22 years ago, the healthcare system is just overloaded and it's worse today than it was then. And I think that I was so young for anyone to look at me, I just, I looked healthy. You can have a patient come in who you can tell has a headache and they have a migraine and it's obvious. And I think to look at me, they just thought this is some type of a migraine. But even when I was sent back to the first hospital that I was at and the doctor dismissed it, that was just, as an ER nurse myself, I can't think of one facility that I've worked at that we would have done that. And I just, it has to be you know, the volume of patients moving through these centers and they make a quick decision and just determined that day that there was really nothing alarming wrong with me. And it's scary. And it's even scarier today now that physicians and medical professionals have less time to spend with their patients and a lot of things are missed. And this is why I'm very fortunate to survive three dissections. But there are many patients that don't survive one. And it was very important to me back then, really, to try to figure out what was wrong with me. When I asked my doctor, I said, what could have caused this? I'm not buying into it's just a spontaneous dissection because I was so healthy. And again, I was dismissed again. And I was just told that I needed to go on with my life and that I would be fine. And that really wasn't the case or how it unfolded. You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. It was the eye of a perfect storm, really. You're talking about a busy system, no index of suspicion for what it turned out to be in the end and doctors who needed to get on to the next patient and all the rest of it. But unequal pupils, uncontrolled hypertension, and the severity of symptoms from somebody who is a health professional herself makes the story even more poignant. Can you tell us what happened next? Over the next couple months, I, one I'll say I was terrified. I did not feel well. My blood pressure was still fluctuating drastically. Severe headaches. My pupils stayed unequal for a very long time. And so at this point, I really, I did, I tried to do a lot of research on my own in my downtime because I just felt like I was being dismissed. I had no, no one advocating for me at all. And I would go online and try to research different things that would come back, come up and this is 22 years ago. The, inter- the internet now has just a wealth of information on it, but it really wasn't the, you know, the case back then. And so I had found a paper and fibromuscular dysplasia was listed as one of the diseases that could cause dissections. And I asked my physician if I could come in. It was my neurologist and drop this off to him. And when I got there, his secretary said, all the doctor would like for you, he, he's got these articles for you to read. And some of them were in there in duplicate. And it was a really devastating day for me because he was so dismissive of me. And the articles were all dated. And like I said, some of them were in there multiple times. And it was pretty much him telling me to go away. And he knew what he was doing. And at that point, I knew that I needed another opinion. And 
at this point, I was about three months out from my dissections and I had went in for additional imaging. And I think things kind of lined up for me. It was in the evening. It was at an offsite. And the tech had said to me, she said, wow, what happened to you? And I said, well, I dissected three arteries. And she said, yeah, I see them here and I see your aneurysms. And I was just aneurysms. Like no one told me I had aneurysms. And I said, can you show me? And she was looking on the screen and I just started crying. I didn't do it in front of her because I didn't want her to realize that she had told me something that I was not aware of. And I went outside and started crying and called my physician and turned my phone call. He told me that, again, I needed to get on with my life and that it was artifact and I just needed to stop. And the next day I went into the hospital because I wanted to get my imaging so that I could take it somewhere else and have it looked at. And the radiologist, the secretary said, um, would you mind waiting a minute? The radiologist would like to speak with you. And so he came out and I was so lucky. I mean, you know, to have her share what she, the text saw on the screen, but then this physician, and he said, you probably don't remember me. And I said, I don't, I was heavily sedated when I had dissected. And, and he said, my wife is your age and she's dying of cancer. And he said, I don't want your family to go through what mine is. And he said, I just wanted to go over your images with you. And I said, so I told him what had happened, my conversation with my physician. He said, no, you have three dissections and you've got two aneurysms. And I was so thankful that day that I don't think a lot of physicians would, I think it would be considered overstepping by a lot of physicians. But he took the time to sit with me. I I think I broke down crying <laughs> and then, and the aneurysms were formed from my dissection. So they were pseudo aneurysms. And so I went to get a second opinion and it took forever for me to find a physician that I could get into. I had all of my uh, medical friends helping me and I waited three hours for this appointment and the doctor walked in and my doctor had stopped my Coumadin and I was so afraid that I was going to have a stroke. My neurologist had. And this doctor came in and uh, was another neurologist. And he said, you've got three dissections. You've got two aneurysms. He said, we need to get you back on your Coumadin. And we need to bring in, you know, a vascular specialist and consider some imaging. And that's what they did. And it was at that point. So now we're about eight or nine months later as all of this has transpired. And they did an angio on me. And that's when the fibromuscular dysplasia was diagnosed. You weren't breathing a sign of relief, I'm sure, because you'd already learned about FMD and you were concerned. So what happened next? It taught me a lot. And what is really sad, and this is why I've become such an advocate for patients, is I could not let my guard down. And because my doctor had told me so many times that I needed to get on with my life, you know, family members and friends, I think, thought I was being a hypochondriac and they look at you and I'm 37 and I ran every day and I was in good shape and it, you know, maybe you should be listening to your physician and get on with your life. So at that point, when I got the diagnosis, I went back and started trying to research more on fibromuscular dysplasia and there was very little information out there. But at that point, I felt like I had a team of doctors where I could relax a little bit, that they cared about me. They were truly taking the time and an interest in my case, and they cared. And as you said earlier, they were looking at me not just as 
I've got this rare disease. They were looking at me as a person and I have a family and I'm a mother and a wife and, and really tried to help me work through this. And sadly, as I did my research into the disease, you know, it was first diagnosed in 1938 in a five-year-old male child. And, and so I was diagnosed in 2000 and I looked at that gap that had somebody come before me or somebody had taken an interest in this disease, my outcome would have been very different. And at that point, I felt as a nurse, I had to keep digging and try to find more answers. And um, at one point, I found other patients on what back then was called a Yahoo support group. And through this group, we started sharing our stories, how we were all being treated very differently. FMD was thought to be a renal disease primarily. And there were so many of us on this page that had had carotid dissections. There were a lot of patients that had had strokes. I actually had a TIA, a small stroke in between my hospital visits when I was being shuffled around. And that's what caused the whole left side of my face to go numb. And so at that point, I really became an advocate, not just for myself, but for other patients that were also diagnosed with fibromuscular dysplasia. And after working with my physicians and additional testing, they discovered that I also have FMD in my renal arteries. And in hindsight, that's what caused my blood pressure to be so erratic over that initial period as I was presenting to the emergency room and until they had actually got me started on medication. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. You mentioned your family, your husband, and everyone else around you. How were they coping with this situation? Because for them, it must have been even more terrifying. It was. And I grew up with five brothers. I'm the only girl. And in my childhood, I had lost two brothers four months apart. And it was terrifying for my parents that they were afraid that they were going to lose me. And I think their fear and anxiety also fed into mine. And I think that just the unknown back then, really not having many uh, medical professionals who actually understood the disease made it hard for everyone. I go to a new doctor and one of my new physicians, he's, what are you here for? And I was telling him and he said, oh, no, no, I am not treating you. (laughs) And he said, I'm not qualified to treat you. And that's pretty scary to hear as a patient. Unfortunately for me as a nurse, I'm very comfortable speaking with physicians and doing the research. And so again, just I just kept advocating for myself. And the more that I advocated for myself, I think mentally, the better I felt. And the more medical professionals that I could educate and that were willing to help me, it really helped with my anxiety because there was still a real fear of dying. And at one point, uh, my pupils, the one who that was large, 
became smaller and the other one became larger. And I remember being out of town and calling my physician and he said, Pam, you just need to go to an emergency room. And back then everything was, you know, I just kept thinking, I can't go to the emergency room every time something happens to me. I get dizzy. Um, I worked in a cath lab when I finally was able to return back to work and I had lost my vision. The whole room just went black on me. And so at, at this point in my diagnosis and my health journey with FMD, my physicians decided to go back in and take a look at the arteries. And over a two-year period, I ended up having stents placed in both carotid arteries. And I have to say that that 90% of my symptoms went away at that point. No, no more headaches, no more dizziness and light, you know, lightheadedness. And typically, you don't stents with FMD. I think with any procedure, there's the risk-benefit. But my chart had been shared. My case had been shared with doctors all around the world. And they felt that due to my ongoing symptoms and the severity of them, it was worth placing stents in my arteries. And for me, it really made a difference. And I think it gave me my life back. But that took a good two years from my initial event. Before we go on to your advocacy work and, and FMD more generally, how were your immediate family coping? You said your parents were very anxious. Presumably your partner was very anxious. How was healthcare responding to them? My parents weren't really at appointments with me. My husband was. And I have to say, once I found the right team of doctors, they were very responsive. My daughter went with me to many of my appointments. And I think that initially, a lot of things were dismissed. It was frustrating. It was scary for them. There was also a fear that could this happen to my daughter? Is it genetic? I mean, with fibromuscular dysplasia, there's still no known cause or cure for the disease. And so I think that with her, she had a lot of anxiety. And then she got to the point where she just didn't want to talk about it anymore. And I think it was out of fear that this could also happen to her. And my fiance, and I have to say that, you know, some of my siblings were just they would help me do the research. They were anxious and they were anxious for me and feared for me. And they jumped right in. It could be a week I wouldn't hear from them. And our communication at that point all became really about my disease. And did I do this? And have I seen this? And so it, it changed the dynamics of our relationships, I think in a good way. They were a strong support system for me, but I have to say, I still felt very alone. The comment I would make is that with so many conditions that are considered rare or invisible in the sense that somebody appears well but is actually has got a significant pathology, healthcare often ignores carers and ignores the other parts of the community that are impacted by the illness to the extent that they feel very alienated by it all as an observer of what's happening to the person they love and living with the grief and the loss that's associated with that. I agree with that. And I think it's, it's very common with a lot of patients even now. And I was just at a doctor's appointment last week, and there was actually a sign in there that said that the patients have a right to have a family or a friend in the room with them. And I do think that that's so important. And I, you know, I tell patients all the time and even family members, regardless of what they're going to the doctors for, I think it is important to have someone with you because 
when I heard the doctor say aneurysms, I don't think I heard any of the rest of the conversation. And my husband had to say to me, Pam, this is what the doctor said. And I'm like, really? Because I really didn't remember it. I was just sitting there scared, afraid that I was going to die. And I, I think that is very important. And I think that as a healthcare provider myself, I've seen it too often, especially in the emergency room. They're busy, they're running, and a lot of medical professionals just feel that they don't have the time to also deal with the anxiety of a, fam a family member and, and the family member's questions. And they just want to address what that one issue is that you came in for. And I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, improvement that can happen within the healthcare system if physicians just had more time to take with patients. True, and not just the patients, but the person who's sitting in the seat next to the patient, because they're hearing the word aneurysm as well. And you can imagine the anxiety and tension that they're feeling, the sense of loss and grief that the one that they love could potentially be lost to them at any time. Absolutely. I want to go now to fibromuscular dysplasia generally, FMD as we call it, and what is the current status of our understanding of that condition? Is there hope that we will be able to diagnose this sooner rather than later? So uh, the current state with FMD, it is considered a vascular disease. And what the disease does is it causes your arteries to form abnormally and it creates narrowing or stenosis. 90% of our patients are women. And the two most common symptoms of the disease are headache and high blood pressure. Now that said, we also have men and young children diagnosed with the disease. And it's interesting, what we're seeing in the children is there's no prevalence towards women. There's just as many boys with the disease. So it's going to be interesting to watch this next generation of children with the disease and, and how, as they age, does the disease change? The disease is not thought to be a progressive disease. And there's still no known cause and cure or cure for the disease. And like I said, it was diagnosed initially in uh, 1938. So the organization, the Fibromuscular Dysplasia Society of America, we do have a patient registry. And currently we have almost or 4,000 patients in the registry. We have 17 centers in the United States that see and treat patients. And so what we've learned, as I had said earlier, is the thought was that FMD was just a renal disease. And now we know that it's not. There are just as many patients presenting with cerebrovascular disease like I did. So you have it in your carotid and vertebral arteries. Children present a little bit differently. But where we're at today, there's just, and I think it really happened just from the data coming from our registry, that a lot more researchers around the world got involved and had an interest in the disease. And I can't tell you how many times when I was initially diagnosed 22 years ago, Doctors really didn't even have an interest in even wanting to know or learn it because they thought it was such a rare disease. And 10 years ago, we made the cover of the Wall Street Journal, and the article was The Rare Disease That Isn't, was the title. And in that article, they took statistics from different studies and estimated that 5 million Americans may be affected by FMD. And so over the last couple of years, 
due to the research happening around the world, they've identified several genes that are linked to FMD. There's still not a main gene, but at this point, they think it's enough that they can start looking um, at treatments, which is very exciting. And honestly, in my lifetime, I never thought that that would happen. So it is very exciting. That said, it, is, it has taken us 22 years to get here, but it gives me a lot of hope for the future. A lot of our researchers around the world are actually starting to get funding and getting big grants to help in their research. And actually, you're in Australia, and one of the centers that's doing a lot of work is Victor Chang. And so, you know, it's, it's exciting to watch the new data that's coming out and being published about the disease. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. It is encouraging that science is now beginning to catch up to some extent with the experience of patients. And yeah, I'm delighted that one of the sites is in Sydney, so go Australia. In terms of the approach to patients now, knowing what you know, I want to put you back in the driver's seat. As a healthcare professional, if you were seeing somebody in the emergency department, what approach would you take that would be different from how you were treated all those years ago? I think it's really easy for medical professionals to assume you know, a female comes in, she's got a headache, that it's just a headache. And a lot of our patients have a history of migraine. So it's just another migraine. And I think that as healthcare professionals, we really have to listen to our patients. They know their bodies. So when they come in and say that something's different or it's a different type of a headache, I can think of a case and it was a male who had FMD history of migraines presented to the emergency room. And that's how it was initially being treated, that it was just another uh, migraine and they were going to try to get it under control and send him home. And he ended up having multiple dissections and he died. And so I think that you can't, there's got to be a balance there. You can't do full workups on everyone. But I do think that if you listen to the patients and they say this is different, and I, a lot of times it just seems like doctors don't even want to do the imaging in the ER. It's, it's just a migraine. We're going to get it under control. You're going home. Or it's easy to say, too, if somebody comes in with uncontrolled hypertension, well, you need to lose weight. What's your diet? You know, you've got a family history and it's dismissed. And so, again, I know that the, the healthcare system is burdened more so now than it was even years ago, but there's gotta be some balance there. And I think that as a medical professional, I was never really taught about rare diseases. I would learn when patients would come in and say, I have this disease. And I think that education goes a long way as well to get people to start thinking, you know, could it be this? And should I, when I'm considering the diagnosis, is this something that I should be considering? And would it really hurt to get the imaging? Patient presents with something that they have in the background. It could be migraine. It could be something else. But they're telling you this is different and it's different because of. 
And the sign that you described at the very start, the unequal pupil, should definitely spark concern. Absolutely, and I still can't. At that point, in that moment, I was so hyper, so scared. It was almost a relief that it was dismissed. I, I know that's even coming from a nurse doesn't make sense, but I was scared and I was really afraid of dying and I didn't want it to be anything. But I can't imagine that if a female came in and presented like I did, that we would have sent her home. So I do think it's important that I always tell patients, even family, know where your level one trauma centers are, know where the best doctors are, know where your stroke centers are. It really is important. During this conversation, you saying that you went and did the research and actually presented the diagnosis to your neurologist and said, could this be, etc. And it's very sad that that person didn't take that on board because you were telling them something that you weren't able to articulate in the history in the way they may have taken it at the emergency department. You know, it's, a, it's an awful feeling when you're walking around feeling like you're going to die. I used to tell people, it could be four months out and friends would say, do you want to go to the movies? And I still wasn't working at that point, but I would be like, no. And I, I, the only way I could explain it back then was I felt like I was stuck in the mud. I couldn't move. I was afraid if I moved, I was going to die. And that's how scared I was. I mean, to be in the hospital and told that I've tore one artery that supplies blood flow to my brain. Then the next day I've torn my second artery that supplies blood flow to my brain. And then within 24 hours later, I've torn three of the four arteries that supply blood flow to my brain. It's a very frightening, depressing, anxiety-driven time in your life. And the world is moving around you. And I just felt like at that time, my, my world stopped and I needed people to stop with me. And I needed people to take the time to listen to me to help me work through this instead of saying you're going to be okay and you need to move on with your life and no, that's not what you have. And, you know, actually his comment was, I can tell by looking at you, that's not what you had. Those were his exact words. That reminds me of that famous saying, when you hear hoofbeats, think of horses, not zebras. The trouble is, it's not just what you're hearing, but what you're seeing. And if that creature that you see out the window has got stripes, it's a zebra no matter what you think. Right. Pam Mace, it's been a joy spending time with you. There's a great deal of wisdom in the story that you share, not only for invisible and rare illness, but for any condition that we are seeing in practice where the signs don't match up to the symptoms, don't match up to the diagnosis that we're considering. We need to retain a high index of suspicion for something that may be much more serious than it appears to be. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's been an honor to be able to take this time with you and raise awareness. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.